Uh, I've shared this story before, and I'll share it again because I think it's funny. Um, I, I, uh, my wife's not in here to even defend herself, but I'm actually <laughs> blaming myself for this one this time. Every other time I've told this story, I'm not. Uh, but often on road trips is when it kind of seems to crop up a lot uh, because we're kind of sitting there in silence for a long period of time. I don't know about you guys, like totally comfortable sitting in the car in silence. I like to do that. And uh, not everybody else enjoys that, including my wife. But uh, we'll be sitting there kind of like halfway having some conversation here and there. And I'm thinking about who knows what. You know, doing that thing where you look up and you're like, have I looked at the road for 21 minutes? Like, what's, what's happening? How did I get from here to there? Um, and one of the things that I think is really funny that my wife has done as long as I have known her is that she will just randomly pick up in the middle of a story and say, and then she said, da, 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 da. And I will go, hold on. Who? What? When? Where? Why? How? Like, I'm not following. What, what are you saying? And she's like, well, I, I was just talking about this. I'm like, that was 11 minutes ago. What are you talking I didn't know that the story continued and that I wasn't keeping track along the way. And here's where I place myself at responsibility. Because really, even though it was a long period of time, I'm going to at least give myself that credit that I thought the story was over. If I had been paying attention all along, I would have known and understood more clearly what this part of the story was that she was telling. I would have connected it back to the kind of constellation of everything else she said and understood exactly how this fit into the story, just like it was working in her own mind. The reason that's important is we need the whole story if we want to understand rightly what is the part we are hearing. We need the whole story if we want to understand the part that we are hearing. So what does this have to do with Jonah? Well, as I indicated before, Jonah is not only one part of this kind of overall revelation and witness uh, to God that we call the Bible that we see in Scripture, uh, but it's also a part of even smaller units within that. It's part of the prophets, as it's so called. It's part of the Old Testament. We need to understand what is the context and the whole story if we're not going to understand what to do with this strange page-and-a-half-long story about a reluctant prophet who gets swallowed by a big fish and then spit out on the beach to ultimately do what God asked him to do but is still mad and frustrated about it anyway because how else are we going to know what to do with that right if we just read that in a vacuum we're kind of free to wonder what on earth does this mean what does the whale mean what does the fish mean whales the veggie tales version uh what does it mean that jonah's angry why is he angry is that how i'm angry sometimes when things don't go my way apart from the whole story we will misunderstand the part that we are reading. And what I want to suggest to you this morning is that if we have been paying attention all along, Jonah invites us, us to a story that we should have been hearing and seeing all across Scripture. It's a story of a rebellion from God called sin, the consequences of that sin, but ultimately of God's mercy. Yes, that's all there in this page and a half story we just read. And so this morning, what I want to do is just kind of trace really these movements that we see across Scripture, but uh, kind of as movements of the story of Jonah, kind of chapters of Jonah's story that reflect the story of rebellion called sin, but ultimately of God's mercy in Scripture. And I want to just kind of orient us towards and to see how all of these things, the rebellion, the consequences of sin, point to this incredible mystery that we see in Scripture of God's mercy. And so the first movement I want to start with is movement one, Jonah's rebellion from God. 
this rebellion from God that we call sin. Uh, when Jonah boards the ship to Tarshish in uh, chapter 1, his rebellion might seem a little bit over the top and maybe even a little bit childish to us uh, as, we, as we interact with it. But uh, what I would suggest to you is that his running from God, his rebellion called sin, is not terribly unfamiliar to God's people that we see in Scripture. And really, if we're honest, not terribly unfamiliar for us as well. Uh, maybe we wouldn't go so far as to board a ship in the opposite direction of the thing that we think God is calling us to, but it reveals kind of in this large grand narrative way a posture that exists in us because of our nature, uh, because of our sin that we have seen modeled throughout the Old Testament. Uh, if you spend any time at all reading the Old Testament, the basic pattern that you will see over and over is that despite God's faithfulness, his people turn from him. Despite God's faithfulness, despite God being a covenant-keeping, gracious and generous God, his people turn from him. Even from the heights, they turn to the depths. Even when God places them in a garden to know and to walk with him, even when he reminds them of his promises amidst their doubt, and even when he delivers them from the hands of their enemies or is faithful to listen, when they have a problem or are in need, when they're scared, afraid for their lives, afraid for their souls. God's people are forgetful, short-sighted, prideful, and foolish. And the reason I use the word God's people is because we should see in the story of Israel something reflected as being true in ourselves. We are these people. The very next time, even after these mountaintop highs with God, the very next time it seems as we read the Old Testament that God's people face a trial or temptation experience, doubt are leveled with fear, God's people turn from him and abandon him and begin to serve and worship false idols. This idolatry exists in God's people over and over again. However, God's people doesn't, do, are not left to their own rebellion and their abandonment of God. No, God chooses to show them grace and mercy even though they choose what is opposite of him, what is dishonoring to him, what is inconsistent with their experience with him time and time again. And the way that we see that kind of happening in the Old Testament, if we read it as a grand arc, as we see this rebellion, this kind of mountaintop high and valley low over and over and over again, we see this through the story of the judges and the kings and all of these things. But uh, really primarily what we see in the Old Testament that kind of screams this from the mountaintops uh, is that God sent certain people called prophets to speak on his behalf uh, to his people. And we have these prophets in the Bible. There are 17 of them in this section we call the prophet, the five major prophets and the 12 minor prophets. And all of them had a unique message and, and spoke to God's people in a particular place and for a particular purpose. But they all shared this one overlapping idea. This one overlapping purpose in the function of God's revelation to his people in his word and in the life of God's people. And that was to warn them to turn away from their rebellious ways lest they face the consequences of their sin. That's, I just summed up 17 books of the Bible for you. Mm -hmm. To warn God's people to turn away from their rebellion and it's, and if, so that they do not face the consequence of God's judgment. Like I said, 
Uh, these messages are collected in a section of our Bibles we call the prophets. Uh, there is no section heading in your Bible, I don't think, unless you have some kind of study Bible that says this called the prophets. But it has the five major prophets, uh, prophets like Jeremiah and Isaiah. They're called the major prophets, not because they're majorly good or majorly awesome or majorly better than the other ones, but because they're majorly long. You'll remember that one forever. Uh, and then the 12 minor prophets like Hosea and Amos, Obadiah, Zechariah, and Jonah. Now, if you're familiar much with the Old Testament or even this section called the prophets, it might surprise you or be a little strange for you to think about Jonah, this narrative story, as a prophet just like Amos. It might surprise you to think about Jonah as a prophet just like Isaiah or Jeremiah. It might surprise us to think about these prophets because it doesn't seem to match in a traditional sense, especially if you've spent much time reading that portion of the Bible. But what I want to suggest to you is that Jonah is just as much a warning to God's people about their rebellion, just as much a warning to God's people about the coming wrath of God. It is just as much as an opportunity to turn away from their rebellious ways and to receive God's mercy Jonah just does it differently. You see, these other prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah speak in parables and poems and sermons and these messages broadly sent out to God's people. The prophetic word that we see in Jonah takes place across the tapestry of his life. You see, Jonah himself is the story that he warns us about. Jonah himself becomes the story of the prophets who speak about this universal rebellion from God called sin. Jonah himself becomes this warning story of the coming consequences and wrath of God because of our sins. And Jonah himself, even though he does not always see it, becomes an object of God's mercy for him. And so as we read Jonah, my, my encouragement to us is to look at this and to see as he begins this rebellion by getting on the boat. And we'll look a little bit more specifically when Jonah finds out that he's in the wrong here in chapter 2. My encouragement to us is that as we read this, what, what we should do is, that, is recognize that we're not intended to merely be the audience of this prophetic word. We are the subjects of a story. We're not just intended to be the audience of Jonah. We are the subjects of Jonah. It's a story that reflects our own, our common rebellion as human beings from God. A story that reveals to us on the macro level as well as on the micro level in matters of day-to-day -day faithfulness to God that we are Jonah more often than we care to think. And so that shows us, Jonah shows us that we are Rebels from God, just like he is. And we, so we see that movement just like within the other prophets. And it moves us to the second movement in chapter 2 as Jonah begins to see and taste and teach to us the consequences of sin. If we look across the Old Testament, one of the basic features of the prophets or one of the basic features of kind of this movement with God's people is that these prophets speak about the consequences of Israel's sin. Uh, whether that's the systemic injustice that we read about in Amos, uh, the oppression from outside enemies, uh, or famine, or any other kind of brokenness about their situation, the prophets are sent to say, look around you. Look at your life. It's not meant to look like that. Look at your treatment of these people. It's not meant to be this way. 
Look at these enemies who oppress you and harm you and, and want your life. It's not meant to be this way. The prophets are sent by God to wake people up to the reality that there are consequences directly related to their sin. These sins are, are, are not just happening in a vacuum. They not only begin in the heart and work out in the lives, but become entrenched in the social structures and powers that be around them and creates this operation and economy of sin all around them. And the prophets are sent to wake people up to this simple reality that if we asked one another on the surface, are there consequences to sin? We would certainly say, well, sure there are. But then we begin to live and operate as if that's not the case at all. That there's something else beneath the suffering, something else beneath the indignity. Something else beneath the problems that we face, not only in our lives, but in our collective life as well. And what's interesting is these prophets across the Old Testament are revealing the consequences directly related to the sin of God's people. Uh, It's interesting that they happen to overlap a lot in their story. Uh, We're talking about these movements that the prophets are pointing them to in their lives and showing you rebelled from God. There's consequences for that sin, yet God will be merciful. They're not only similar in that regard, they're much more similar in kind of the nature and the message and communication that they are sharing with God's people. Uh, One of the things that's interesting, if we look at uh, one of the earliest prophets, I would invite you to flip over, it's back probably 10 pages to to Hosea chapter 8. Uh, Hosea was one of the earliest prophets in the section called the prophets uh, that would have been writing. And what we see in Hosea is that he developed this powerful poetic imagery to talk about the consequences of the sin of God's people. And we'll talk about coincidences. Here we go. Hosea chapter 8 verses 1 through 4. If you don't have it in front of you, that's fine. I'll read it out loud. Set the trumpet to your lips. One like a vulture is over the house of the Lord. Because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. To me they cry, my God, we, Israel, know you. But, there should be a but, at least in my mind. Israel has spurned the good. The enemy shall pursue him. They made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. With their silver and gold they made idols for their own destruction. You see, in Hosea chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, we see that similar pattern emerge. They acknowledged God. They said they believed in God. They said they wanted to honor God with their lives. They went to church every Sunday. They did all the things that they were supposed to be doing, right? They said, we know God. We honor God. Really similar, by the way, to how Jonah said, I'm a Hebrew. I I, I come from the God who created everything that we see, even the storm that we're in. Isn't that crazy right now? They recognize on the surface that they know God that they walk in his ways, but they rejected what was good, and because of that, an enemy pursues them. Sound familiar? Let's take it a step further. Hosea chapter 8, verses 8 through 10. So skip down a little bit. Here's the language about the consequence of sin. Israel is swallowed up. Israel is swallowed up. Already they are among the nations as useless as, as useless vessels, for they have gone up from Assyria, a wild donkey wandering alone. Ephraim has hired lovers. Though they hire allies among the nations, I will soon gather them up 
and the king and princes shall soon arrive because of the tribute. So God is, is, is showing us through the prophet Hosea here that there is a pattern and it rings so similar and, uh, and familiar to the story that we are seeing in Jonah. It even uses this language specifically of Israel being swallowed up. And that's not even the only example. Uh, we see in Jeremiah chapter 51 verse 34 that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has devoured me. This is language used to describe the consequences of sin, that there is, a, there is a beast called wickedness and sin and chaos and disorder that is seeking to devour us because of our sin. It says, he has crushed me. He's made me an empty vessel. He swallowed me like a monster. That's Jeremiah, not Jonah. Now, that's just too much to ignore. And like I jokingly said before, uh, this is not just a mere coincidence that the prophets are all saying the same thing. That there is a judgment, there is a consequence to sin like a monster from the deep that is coming to engulf us, coming to swallow us up because of our own rebellion and our own foolishness against God. And, and, but what should we take away from that? And I, I think the point is that we should understand this big fish that comes to swallow Jonah less as a demonstration of God's power even though it is. And we should understand the big fish uh, less as kind of insurance that Jonah would do the things that God called him to, to, even though that's true. But really, we should see this big fish as a warning that sin is not without consequence. We experience the devastation and destruction of sin in our lives by our own foolish wondering. And Jonah is preaching the same message as the other prophets, like we said before, by becoming the warning story himself. The prophets only could imagine what Jonah would have experienced personally. And this isn't a reason to doubt that it's true or real, uh, that it's not just some mere allegory or something like that, but to show us that there is a consistency among the witness of God's prophets pointing to this truth that sin has its consequences. Sin invites chaos and disorder and suffering and disillusionment in our lives. It is not a victimless crime that happens in a vacuum. Sin comes at a cost to ourselves. Sin comes at a cost to ourselves. And just like the, pro the prophets who spoke to these people, we too need to sit in the seat of the audience as the subjects of Jonah's story and realize that there's something of truth here for us to grasp onto. How often are we asleep to that reality in our lives? How often do we just think of our sin as just an unfortunate disappointment to an ultimately benevolent and merciful God? How often do we think of our sin as inconsequential, impacting no one, especially if no one else sees or knows about it? Our sin is not without consequences. It comes at a cost to ourselves. And I think what Jonah does is, is for us sitting in the subject seat of this story is it exposes so powerfully and brilliant that, that brilliantly that often we might acknowledge that this is true, that sin has its consequences, but we live as though it isn't. We might say on the exterior that we believe that sin is, is powerful and ugly and chaotic. It invites disorder and disillusionment in our lives, but we live as though that's not true. Maybe that's a flirtation with a sin and, and a closeness to sin that ought not to be true for the people of God. Maybe that's an indifference or an ambivalence about the sin in our lives or in the sins of the community of saints. Whatever that is, so often we live like it's not true that sin has consequences that that sin has a cost. Jonah tells us that's not quite true. 
and he does it through a whale. But before he gets swallowed by the whale, the Veggie Tales version, he's on a boat. Have you ever been on a boat? Anybody been on a boat before? I like being on a boat. If you ever been on a boat like Jonah was on the way to Tarshish, uh, you know that it's really a very freeing experience. I asked if you'd been on a boat. Maybe I should ask if you like boats. Not everybody likes boats. Maybe you get seasick or something like that. Uh, I love fishing, and uh, recently, or earlier this year, I was able to uh, uh, do some salmon fishing out on Lake Michigan. And uh, one of my favorite parts of that whole experience was like as the sun was setting, we were just going 12 miles out into the open water. And as far around as you can see, it's nothing. There's nothing but me and alone in my thoughts. I'm a pretty introverted person, so this is kind of the dream scenario for me. It's just the guides, and they're sitting there quietly enjoying the moment as well. And when we're on a boat, when we're out on the water, uh, there's something about this story, and maybe it's something that rings familiar and true in your life as well. There's something freeing about the experience of being out on the open water. The wind in your face, nothing else matters, nothing is before you, nothing is behind you. And if you can relate to that experience at all, you know that it only makes the contrast more stark when Jonah is out here escaping from the will of God, escaping from his responsibility, out here in his freedom, free to, you know, set sail towards the horizon and do whatever he wants. It only makes the contrast more stark when Jonah moves from open freedom in the water down and down and down into the depths, into the belly of the fish. And here's what I think is important about this. This picture illustrates a really important and powerful truth. Sin often looks like wide open freedom, but in reality, it is confinement. Sin often looks like wide open freedom, like the open waters before us, nothing to worry about before us, nothing to worry about behind us, just me out here setting sail for greener pastures. But it is actually confinement. It might look like the better way. It like, might look like the more satisfying alternative to the stuffy and restrictive commandments of God we think, think in our minds. But the Bible says something very differently. It's not just another way that God is displeased with. No, it says that sin is actually bondage to corruption. In Romans chapter 8, sin promises abundance but invites only the consequences of disorder and suffering and pain in our lives. And so what Jonah does for us is we read the story of him on a boat and see that vastly interrupted in this really severe way. Uh, I, I love the language that this one writer uh, talking about the life of C.S. Lewis calls it a severe mercy we, we see this severe mercy come on Jonah as his rebellion and, and fleeing towards the open waters of sin is interrupted, not with another way, but the reality of his situation, that it wasn't actually freedom, it was bondage to corruption. It wasn't actually better, it was the way of suffering. It wasn't actually the way to be yourself and follow your heart and do your thing and be who you are to become. It is the way of bondage to a way of death and chaos and disorder and destruction Jonah shows us that in the belly of the whale like the other prophets Jonah has exposed our sin and warned us of its consequences that they will come to find us and so now as we see this movement just like when we read in the other prophets uh, if you read the other prophets you know that it's often kind of a bleak affair right and you're reading about these things, reading about the rebellion from God called sin, reading about the consequences that we're seeing, not only in our lives as the people of God, but in the world around us. It leaves us with this burning question. 
will God continue to be merciful on the other side? Will God continue to be merciful on the other side? Well, Jonah points us to the third movement, the resolve that every prophetic word in Scripture ends with. God shows Jonah mercy. Though often the only bright spot in the otherwise bleak message of the prophets is this. It is a good one nonetheless. They remind us that God's promises are always stronger than our rebellion. God's promises are always stronger than our rebellion. Even amidst their indictment of sin, even amidst their honesty, the, the harsh honesty and ugly picture of our reality in our lives, there is the hope that God will preserve his people. The Bible never points out our sin without a hyperlink straight to the hope of God for us. The hope in his mercy, the hope in his steadfast love, the hope in the midst of our unfaithfulness in his faithfulness, that he will show mercy. You see, that same message of hope in God's mercy is present in Jonah. I want you to see two things. First one is this. Jonah reminds us that God gives mercy to the undeserving. In Jonah chapter 2, this is his prayer to the Lord. In verses 4 and 7, he makes a mention of something that I think is really important, kind of the key overarching thing here that is beneath um, what's happening in his prayer. In the midst of his despair for his sin, and in a posture of repentance to God, recognizing that his sin got him here, recognizing that it was his rebellion that landed him in the belly of the fish, Jonah does what? He looks to the temple. It says in verse 4, Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. Now that's an interesting notion, right? That when we recognize our sin, when we see how ugly we are, we look to the hot spot of God's presence among us. That we would come before the holy, awesome God who is without blemish and without error in the midst of our own rebellion. We would look to the temple. Why on earth would we do that? Verse 7, when my life was fainting away, I remember the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. I don't know about you, but often when I sin, I don't want to think about God. I don't want to think about him and his holiness. I'd like to believe that he isn't omnipresent and omniscient. I would like to think that he isn't here. He doesn't see and doesn't know. Yet Jonah looks squarely at the temple in his prayer. And recognizing his rebellion, he looks at the temple. Well, the temple is not only the hotspot of God's presence, right? It's the place where God's glory and fullness dwelled among his people. But the temple also re represents the place of God's mercy. For his people. You see, at the temple altar, sacrifices would be offered that God's people might escape the condemnation brought on them by the law because they could never live up to its demands. And so they would go to the temple, make these burnt offerings and sacrifices to God as a propitiation for their sin, to use the kind of biblical theological language there. In other words, to cover and stand and substitute for their sin. They offered sacrifices in their place. This was God's uh, gracious covenant with his people that they could sacrifice a spotless blemish animal in the place of themselves to die the death that they deserve to die for their sin. That happened in the function and economy of the temple because of God's gracious mercy. So Jonah looks to the temple, not because, he, not because he doesn't feel shame, not because he doesn't feel sorrow or remorse for his sin. He looks to the temple because that is the place of God's mercy for him and for his people. And he recognizes in the depths of his despair that's what he needs. 
And he recognizes again something that is true, that the mercy of God only comes through costly measures of atoning sacrifice, but it is freely given to God's people. It points us to the condemnation of sin, but the mercy of God that Jonah looks at the temple. Now, of course, as readers on this side of the coming of Jesus, on this side of the New Testament, as we call it, on this side of the Old Testament, on this side of the story of Jonah, this, of course, his looking at the temple points us ahead to the ultimate expression of God's mercy, the fullness of God's mercy that when, when he uh, was embodied in flesh, in, in, the, in, in Jesus Christ, was embodied in flesh and came proclaiming this message of God's mercy and repentance and forgiveness of sins. It points us to a Jesus who came in flesh and proclaimed this message of mercy and forgiveness, who unlike Jonah would be perfect obedient to God, yet instead of a crown of seaweed hanging over his head, pulling him down into the depths to pay the ultimate price for his own rebellion, a crown of thorns was placed on the head of Jesus that he might die and be subjected to death, not because of his rebellion, but because of ours. As we look at this story of of Jonah, we we know we don't look to the temple as Jonah understand, understood it. We look to what the temple pointed to. We look to what the sacrifice and the atonement of sins pointed to. We look to what the mercy of God in its highest and fullest expression would be, that it was in the person of Jesus Christ who came and became obedient to God, what we could not do, died the death on the cross that we deserved and, and deserved to, to die and live the life that we could not have lived and brings us into that life together, not only covering our sins, but bringing us into that power, bringing us into that life and life abundantly that he brings for us and for our sake. This Jesus would likewise spend three days and three nights in the belly of the beast, face to face with the destruction and power and chaos of sin, but he would emerge victorious in power. He raised from the dead, and now sits at the right hand of the Father, the seat of mercy for our sake. That is what Jesus has become for us, and that's what Jonah points us to. It points us that the resolve to the story isn't just that we are in rebellion from God. It points us not to just see that in this story that that our sin has consequences and it affects our life in this negative, harsh, severe way, but our resolve is to see that ultimately God will be merciful to us even when we don't deserve it. And that's through the blood of Jesus, the costly measure. Secondly, this is a quick one. Jonah reminds us that God uses even the consequence of our sin for redemptive ends. You see, in Jonah's story, this tool of divine judgment, the fish, and sin's consequence turns out to be a vehicle for his mercy. Uh, Though Jonah ended up in the belly of the fish because of his own sin, God ultimately used it for his gracious purposes to restore Jonah to bring him back to life abundantly, to bring him back to his will and ways. And this is good news for us because it tells us that there is no sin of our own or the sin of somebody else that is perpetrated on you that is beyond the reach of God's sovereign mercy. 
There is no sin in your life or in the lives of those around you that affects you that is beyond the reach of God's sovereign mercy. Even when we taste the devastation of sin in our lives, we can know that God sees the ruins as exactly the building blocks he needs for his purposes, that he will use them for good. That's a theology of suffering. That's a theology for the brokenness of this world that God in his infinite mercy and sovereignty will take the wreckage and make it good for those who love him. The story ends and begins and is carried by this mystery of God's mercy. And so what do we do with that? Well, this morning, if we are here and hearing this message, perhaps for us it crops up something in our heart where we recognize I've got sin that the prophet Jonah exposes. And I see that now. I'm on the ship to Tarshish and just sailing out for a good time. Maybe for you that, that causes you to look around at this just the corruption, devastation, and brokenness of your life. And it may ask you to, it's not always the fault of your sin, by the way. I hope, I hope that's not the suggestion that you here, but maybe to look at those things as, as an evidence and maybe turn those to God and say, where, where am I creating this discord because of my own rebellion, because of my own sin? It's an opportunity to repent. Uh, maybe for you, you're faced with this mercy of God that we see in Jonah, this undeserving, unmerited mercy of God for Jonah and for you. And you are just thunderstruck that, that a loving God would give to you this kind of mercy, even amidst your sinful rebellion. Wherever, wherever this message strikes you, I, I want you to see and be invited to this truth this morning. Uh, because God is merciful, we can receive his mercy by turning to him once again in repentance and faith. There's always a next time. There's always, there's never the last time. There's always a next time. God will time and time again give mercy to those who rebel against him. God will time and time and time again give mercy to those who know better. He will time and time and time again give mercy to those who received enough mercy and still aren't getting the point, and they're still, they're still suffering, they're still rebelling, they're still walking in their foolish and ignorant ways. God, again, will be merciful. And because he is, by his nature, Kimberly said earlier, a merciful God, we can come to him and receive his mercy. We turn to him by repentance and faith. And I just want to ask you right now uh, just to bow your head and close your eyes. I ask you to meditate on this pattern of repentance that we see in Jonah and to do it in your own heart. I'm going to read Jonah's prayer, chapter 2. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves... And your billows pass over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again to your holy temple. Church, meditate on that truth this morning. Jonah looks around at his situation and says, I recognize your hand at work here. I see that this was your, your action. I see that this was your mercy. I see that this was you at work. And in verse 4, looking at the temple, he turns his eyes back to God. He goes on to say in verse 5, The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. 
I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God, Jonah says as he was still in the pit, thanking God for his compassion. That no matter how his circumstances went, no matter how the course of his life went, even though he said this, still in the belly of the beast, still in the pit, he recognized that God had compassion and mercy for even preserving his life for another breath. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah prays in this moment, renewing his commitment to God. Church, I just ask you in a moment of silence to think to yourself. Consider before the Lord. Where in your life is there a need for repentance? To turn again to his mercy. To see as his merciful hand the work of him in your life. Where do you need to turn your eyes back to him? Where do you need to see his compassion at work in your circle? <clears throat> How in your life do you need to renew again a commitment unto the Lord? Church, I'm just asking you to consider in this opportunity and moment of silence that you can receive mercy because God is merciful. You can receive mercy because Jesus has become the sacrifice for you. Unlike you, he didn't rebel from God. Unlike you, he was subjected to a death that he did not deserve in order that you might live the life you couldn't have lived. He became these things for us that we might receive yet again and always and forevermore the mercy of God in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our rebellion and brokenness, and foolishness and ugliness and despair. God is merciful.